This is part two of a two-part podcast series on BankInfoSecurity.com. In anticipating threats, you've been on the forefront of thinking a step ahead all the time. What are some of the things you recommend banks and credit unions do to strategically stem phishing attacks? Well, first of all, you need to understand trends and vulnerabilities, not only technical, but human, too. And, and the human vulnerabilities, they actually change over time. As people are educated and as new technology is introduced and uh, penetrating the marketplace. Um, and also, you need to understand trends um, in countermeasures. For example, if we for a moment hypothesize that takedown becomes very, very efficient and fast, then what will happen? That means that fishers will not be able to keep their sites up for very long, and so most of their potential victims who do click on the link will be taken to a site that no longer exists. And of course, that's to great disadvantage to the fisher, and they wouldn't want that to happen. So the natural um, reaction to this would be for the fishers to have many sites. Say, for an attack with a million potential victims, say that the Fisher actually could have a million different sites. And each person who gets an email were, would be taken to a new site, specially designed for them. Of course, this is not difficult if you have the machines. You just slap the material on there. But what it would mean is that once the, when the financial institution initiates takedown, that takedown of the sites that they are aware of, whether it's from a honeypot or from a complaint of the, one of their um, clients, they're not going to take down on any of the others because these would be unrelated domains and sites. And one very big concern of mine is that this is very easy to do. One of the easiest ways to do this is to compromise consumer routers, the access points that almost everybody has in their home, for example, a Netgear router or a Linksys router. And on these compromised machines, which actually are pretty full-fledged computers, there you host content. So say that an attacker managed to compromise a million of these. That means now we could point other people, a million people, potential victims of an attack of theirs, to these million different access points. Takedown will be worthless. Takedown is not going to work when the banks can't target all of them. And um, then you might ask, how could this happen? How could an attacker compromise a million routers. Um, in a couple of papers that I've been a co-author of, we've shown that this is um, terrifyingly easy. Um, firmware is a kind of uh, software that is running on these machines, which firmware is a kind of software that uh, doesn't disappear when you switch the machine off and then power it up again. It's uh, a little bit like an operating system in that it remains the firmware can be replaced on a router. And in the small experiments, we've seen that about half of consumer routers out there are vulnerable to this attack, meaning if I were to manage to get access to, um, by being close enough to a million routers, then 500,000 of these I could compromise. But it gets worse, actually. These router malware you could, you could think of it as router malware, actually could propagate from router to router. In a densely populated area, 
you could actually see more than one router at the same time. If, if you live in an apartment complex, you will see that it's not only yours that you connect to, you could connect to many others. So imagine an attacker that compromises one of these routers. And then, as part of the compromised task, this router will sniff for other routers, which it can compromise, and spread the malware onto those. And it will propagate in a maybe epidemic manner if there is enough connectivity here. And after he's propagated, all of those machines now, all of these routers are owned, in a sense, by the attacker. He could do whatever he wishes. And in particular, he could host material on them, uh, phishing sites. Uh, so that's the kind of, if you hypothesize a takedown become fast, you'd have to be afraid that of a scenario like this. Also, you'd have to be afraid that keyloggers would become more common. And this is a threat that becomes very viable through games and what's called mods and screensavers and other user-installed material. And also what's called metamorphic viruses. These are just viruses that are difficult for antivirus software to detect because it changes shape all the time. And so the signature files that the uh, antivirus companies produce aren't likely to actually defend very well against it. Also, you could see as a third approach, if, if takedown becomes very fast, is that the fisher will just say, um, well, um, I'll do it through the phone instead. I'll do phone phishing, or something people refer to as phishing. Um, that comes from voicemail phishing. And um, that is also the likely reaction if spam filtering, say, becomes spectacularly successful. Well, you just avoid email. Going back, you mentioned domain names previously. Do you recommend financial institutions also take the domain names that match existing or future slash potential services or features of the institution or its competitors? And how would you suggest institutions handle mergers and domain names and also the possible misuse of domain names during these times? This is a good question. Um, let me give you. Let me answer this by two examples. Um, some time ago, uh, Bank One was acquired by Chase, and this became a very vulnerable time to um, to clients of Bank One because they weren't quite aware of what Chase looked like and what the format of logging in to Chase was, nor were they. They weren't so sure about the URLs and all other aspects of online banking either. So say that a fisher would register a domain like bank1becomeschase.com. Most people would find that rather plausible, I would argue. And um, so then you take advantage of the fact that people are vulnerable at the same time as you have um, an opening to use a new domain name that wasn't very meaningful before. Um, another thing that... Uh, you could do is, if your bank, apart from registering these in advance, would be to look at attacks that are occurring and targeting other financial institutions. For example, there was an attack that many refer to as the Chase Rewards attack um, last spring, in which a lot of people got emails uh, saying that uh, their Chase customer uh, we'd like to know how you like our services, and please fill the survey, and you'll give, you'll get uh, twenty dollars for the um, 
for the effort, and, and later it was increased to 50, and yet later to 100. And if the user took time to answer the survey, which was not of any interest at all to the fisher, they would get this reward. And of course, the way in which they would get the reward would be to log in. So this was just a psychologically complicated way of uh, getting to the user credentials. Now, what happened was that fishers realized that this was rather successful, but that uh, there were other banks as well whom they could target. And only some months later, you started seeing it on Washington Mutual. Now, as soon as that happened, I went out and registered wamo-rewards.com. Um, this is something Washington Mutual should have done. They should have done it the moment they saw the chase attacks many of which were performed uh, using domains um, like Chase Rewards or similar. They should have taken every domain in which they saw on the Chase attacks, and they should have registered the same domain preemptively, stopping the attacker from using those if they were to turn to Washington Mutual. And by the way, if anybody's listening to this and do work for Washington Mutual, I'd be quite happy to transfer uh, this domain to you, but I need to, I need to know that I transfer it to you, of course. Um, and um, so you should practically look at what could happen to you based on what's happening to others and what could happen to you because of your particular situation. Well, that is just amazing. In your paper, I believe you had mentioned the domain name phishing uh, example where fishers took two letter V's and put them together, squash them together to spoof Wachovia.com's name. And you had gone on to say it is something that all banks and credit unions should uh, look at for a lot more carefully. Um, and going on, it's been estimated that more than 10% of all networked computers now run some type of botnet software. I'll let you explain to our audience what botnet software is, and that an even larger amount are still affected by various forms of malware. What are some of the techniques you would recommend to institutions to stop these? So first of all, bot, botnet software is a type of malware that is remotely controlled by an attacker. When I when I spoke of the attack that could be used, uh, that could be performed using uh, consumer access points and routers, what I really described was a botnet. It's a large number of machines that are controlled by the attacker and which perform tasks on behalf of the attacker. And these are often used for what's called denial of service, uh, and they're used for spam, but they could also be used to host phishing pages and other things. And uh, so more than 10% of all computers uh, has been estimated do have uh, botnet software. And that's, of course, um, quite worrisome. What we need to do is to do notice if any one particular computer does, or not only botnet software, but malware in general. And uh, one good way of knowing that is, um, of course, you, if you make everybody use um, antivirus software, then the antivirus software would catch this. But not everybody do use antivirus software, and it's sometimes misconfigured, and also it's not bulletproof. It only takes care of known threats, and it can't take care of threats that just started to occur 
until the antivirus company updates the what's called the signature files. So there is one way which you could counter this threat. Um, it's referred to as remote harm detection. It's a way to remotely, from a financial institution, for example, scan the machine of a person who comes there. It doesn't need executables, and you certainly don't want your clients to have to download executables because it trains them to do very dangerous things. But just by arriving at your web page, um, being there will scan certain aspects of your computer, and in particular, the browser history of the client, uh, to see if they've been to bad places or places that signify having been corrupted. And so that's one way of detecting um, whether a machine has been compromised. And, and if you know that it has, then you know, of course, not to trust anything that comes from that machine. It could also host a keylogger, and uh, it is a machine that is dangerous in some sense, and you need to flag it. Going on to one of our last questions, how can we anticipate threats from strengths and weaknesses, and are there any examples that you can give to illustrate this? Yeah, I'll give you a couple of examples again. One is to um, say that there's a better detection of spoofed messages. Say that software in general or people in general are become better at uh, detecting if it's spoofed or not. Um, you'll see more cousin name attacks. These are attacks that rely on um, names that somehow mentally to the user uh, relates to the brand that is being impersonated. Uh, for example, I mentioned uh, the potential phishing attack in which you could say switch to Citibank and you get $50 or something like that. A cousin name attack that would relate to this would uh, might correspond to a domain name which is switch to city.com. Um, and so if you have better detection of these, these types of attacks are probably going to increase. When people become aware of IP addresses more and get more afraid of them, you'll see this. Also, um, if I register a domain like Organ Chase, it sounds like a ridiculous domain, say organchase.com, I could actually use what's called a subdomain. This is the, the text that comes before the domain name on the web page. If I use JPM as a subdomain, what it will look like when you look at the URL is JPM period organchase.com, which most people will read like JPM Morgan Chase, and it would look legitimate. So you get these wacko-looking domains that uh, are threatening. So banks should not only register what looks similar, um, like you mentioned, uh, instead of W, you could uh, register something with two Vs, and not only what psychologically is related, like switch to city, but they should also register things that are kind of subsets of this, like organchase.com. Do you have any best practices that you would like to share with all the financial institutions out there that they should be following in their fight against fishers? Yes, not only to focus on the technical aspects like SSL and takedown, but consider the human factor too. Both when you're designing the email templates and when you design the site. Also, you must track vulnerabilities among clients, for example, using what's called take-home. Uh, take-home is an alternative to take-down. Take-down, of course, blocks a site. Take-home redirects traffic to a given URL 
suicide controlled by the legitimate brand. So if instead of blocking access to a phishing site, the financial institution could just demand that the ISP forwards traffic. And so anybody who is a potential victim and comes to the site could be taken to the financial institution where, first of all, the financial institution, if they use cookies or something like that, would be able to determine who was it. So they get demographics. And this is not to punish people. This is to understand the risks. And second, they could display educational material there. They could say, you arrive at the site because the following actions. Uh, you clicked on an email that looked like such and such. And then they could show something, for example, like the comic I described, that describes what do fishers do? How do you avoid fishing? And so you turn defeat into educational opportunity. And most of all, when if you do educate users, you must do that in a way that does not intimidate them. First of all, you don't want to scare them away, of course, but you also don't want to make them turn the other way and say, this is just too creepy to be true. And our final question is, what is your opinion on the most re recent bank that was fished? Uh, I believe it was last Friday that it broke on the news, the Nordia Bank in Sweden. Um, can you explain to us what happened and if it was significant? Well, this was a very well-organized attack in which a large number of users were fished. Um, and uh, it's believed that it was Russian mob that uh, stands behind the crime. Technically speaking and psychologically speaking, there's nothing particular about the attack. Um, it was spectacularly efficient in that it extracted about around a million dollars from users, which from, from clients, which was later reimbursed by this bank. Um, but then again, that might just be because of openness that we that we learn about this and it looks so spectacular. There might be other banks that face similar kind of um, attacks every once in a while. What is really special about the attack is uh, that it highlights the problem, um, not that it changes the way things are done or that um, they use a new technique or anything. It's just a very successful attack. Dr. Jacobson, I'd like to thank you for your time today, and we will look forward to hearing more from you in the future as new mitigation techniques are developed. <coughs> Be sure to look for Dr. Jacobson's book, Fishing and Countermeasures, Understanding the Increasing Problem of Electronic Identity Theft, uh, published in 2006 by Wiley Publishers. It's available on Amazon. I'm Linda McGlasson, and this is another interview on the bankinfosecurity.com podcast series. Tune in soon for the next interview in our series with information security experts, cyber luminaries, and top financial institution leaders. So long until then. <laughs>